Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast, helping moms to love wisely and well. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Wild, integrative pediatrician and mom of eight sons who continually challenge and teach me. Over the years, I've learned that rather than outward technique, it's the internal landscape of the heart that affects parenting more than anything else. Mothering is about being, not just doing. You have everything you need within you to become the parent you want to be. So let's bring it out. Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Kay Toomey. She is a psychologist and the creator of the SOS Approach to Feeding. She speaks internationally and nationally about solving our problems with getting our kids to eat healthy food. And so we're so happy to have you. Thank you. You are very welcome. I am honored, obviously, to be here and have this opportunity to speak to your audience. So thank you for inviting me. Yes. Well, First of all, why don't we just talk about some basic principles to help us in terms of avoiding battles at mealtime? Because we hear a lot about how it's such a protective thing to eat meals together as a family, and um, we want it to be very ideal, but yet sometimes in the day-to-day life of it, it doesn't feel that way. So how how can the SOS approach help us? Well, um, you know, the first thing we always say in SOS is there's a difference between what's real and what's ideal. (laughs) And that, you know, when we go into mealtimes, whether we're a parent or whether we're a therapist giving recommendations to families about how to do mealtimes, we're going to think about, we're going to talk about what's ideal, right? But there's oftentimes a really big difference between what's real and what's ideal. Right. So that that's the first place we always start with is thinking about every meal you have to take a step back, I think, as a parent and really look at, okay, what is our reality today? I like to suggest that parents at some point in your mealtime prep routine that you pick out something you do on a regular basis whether that's taking the pots out of the cupboards, whether it's standing in front of the cupboard and wondering what you're going to make this evening, uh, standing in front of the refrigerator, thinking the same thing, you know, something that you do, set the table um, that, that's a, a normal part of your mealtime routine and really actually do a little mini mental health check-in with yourself mm-hmm. about, okay, how am I doing today? How is my child doing today? What is our reality today? Is this the day that we're going to be okay with having something a little more complicated at mealtimes because my child's in a really good space, the rest of the family's in a really good space, or you know what, we've had a really cruddy day and that's our reality today. And today we're gonna do something really easy and do something like having breakfast for dinner. Yeah. so I, I think one of the key pieces to avoiding battles at mealtime is actually to do that little mini mental health check for yourself and what's going on with your child and what's the day like, and then to adjust your expectations for that mealtime based on what's the reality of today's day. 
So, mm-hmm. so not setting yourself up for a battle, I think is the first piece to avoiding battles in, in, in the first place. Yes. I think another really big thing though, about understanding how to avoid battles at mealtimes is understanding what your child's feeding skills are, what their eating skills are. You know, we think about, and we understand as parents that we have to teach our children to walk, that we have to teach our children to crawl, that we have to teach them how to talk. Now, we know there are certain developmental drives in place that's going to push that along, hopefully, ideally, but we understand and recognize as parents that we have to step in and do some of that teaching. But somehow there's this idea out there that eating is just automatic, instinctive, it's natural, it happens no matter what. And unfortunately, that is not true. We know that eating is a learned behavior and that eating is driven by your appetite instinct. And it's so strong that it's going to force your child to eat whether they want to or not or are capable of eating or not only for the first four to six weeks of our life. That's it. The first four to six weeks, that's when theoretically it's driven by appetite instinct. But that's only if you're born with your instincts intact, which obviously many of our children are born prematurely, children who are born with genetic disorders, other kinds of intrinsic physical problems. They don't have that in place. Then your primitive motor reflexes that hopefully you're born with as well are going to take over as the primary driver of eating. But those primitive motor reflexes are only going to stay in place solidly until about three to five months of age four to six months of age. And so that after four to six months of age, eating no longer just happens. It's not really pushed by that appetite instinct at the same level. And it's not driven by those primitive motor reflexes. And so after six months of age, eating is actually a learned behavior. It's a learned set of motor patterns. And after six months of age, a baby only has three choices. They either learn to eat, they learn to not eat, or they learn to kind of sort of eat. That's it. (laughs) Those are your three choices. And so teaching our children to eat really is something we need to start right away, even before six months of age. As soon as we begin to introduce complementary foods, we need to be thinking about how we're teaching our children how to eat and what it is that we're teaching our children to eat and recognizing that different children are going to have different skill abilities with different kinds of foods. Dr. Timmy, I think that um, it's, you know, even though you're talking about how this is actually another area that we as parents um, may have to be mindful and, you know, think, think about what we're teaching. I actually think it's it's a huge relief to realize that these things aren't automatic because then when we're having issues with it, then we know that it's it's not a huge abnormality or a huge um, deficit on our part, that it's it's actually a normal thing that it's a process to learn. Exactly, exactly. And that we know that every child is born differently. As much as we would all like to have the perfect child, I don't know if there is a perfect child on the planet, right? Um, right. We're, we're all born with 
intrinsic strengths and unfortunately intrinsic weaknesses. We're all born with things in our body that works really well, that we're natural talents at. And we're all born with things that we're, we're just not so good at from a physical <laughs> standpoint. You know, don't try to make me run because I, that is not going to work real well for me. You know, and it, it's the same with our children. Our children have different body-based skills. And, and depending on how your child's put together from a body standpoint, a developmental standpoint, a physical standpoint, certain learning components of eating are going to be easier for them and certain ones are actually going to be more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. And and so that's why different foods are going to be easier for your child and other foods are going to be more challenging for your child. Mm -hmm. We also know that there are certain times in development where feeding gets better and feeding gets worse for all children. It's a part of the normal developmental process of learning to eat. Children don't actually learn to eat really well until after five years of age. Mm -hmm. um, what we know is the first big push for learning to eat is gonna happen in the first two to three years of life. But we know that learning to chew, uh, it actually gets more and more refined through until about the age of six. Mm -hmm. So your child doesn't actually have the skills to eat super, super well until they're about six, seven years of age. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it is something for parents to understand because I do think we get into blaming ourselves as parents when our children don't eat very well. Mm -hmm. and, and we think it's our fault when what we need to do is step back and look at what's going on with our child's body. In, mm -hmm. in, in the SOS approach to feeding, we like to say, you know, feeding issues are not all in kids' heads. Eating issues are not all in young kids' heads. Feeding issues are all in their body. And feeding and eating issues in young children are not all in the parents' heads either. Yeah. It's really about us understanding as parents what our children's skills are and then choosing foods and preparing foods in a way that matches our child's current skill set mm -hmm. while we're teaching them how to develop better skills to eat a wider range of harder to chew foods. And of course, one of the most challenging things about getting our children to have good nutrition is that the most challenging foods for them to eat from a skill standpoint are hard raw fruits with peels, hard raw vegetables, and real meat which are all the foods from a nutrition standpoint we want our children to eat. Mm -hmm. And yet they're the most difficult things for children mm -hmm. to manage. That and mixed textures. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think it's so important to step back and really think about it. it's okay to not give your children big mixed textures all the time if they're struggling with really big mixed textures that yes. it's okay to think about giving them cooked carrots if they're not good at chewing up raw carrots. Mm -hmm. That there are things we can do as parents to adjust the menu we plan for this meal based on what our child's current skill levels are or, or based on the reality of today. If right. your child is, you know, had a terrible day at school, they're exhausted, they're not feeling good, sitting down and expecting them to eat a, a steak and, 
you know, a salad is not going to work. It, mm. That's going to set you up for a mealtime battle. What mm. you need to step back and think about is, you know, okay, if salad and steak is what we're planning for dinner, maybe what I need to be doing for my child is cutting that steak up into teeny tiny little bits for my child, mm -hmm. even though I think they should be old enough to manage it. Maybe I should be serving the salad in separate ingredients for mm -hmm. my child instead of mixing it all together. And we have cucumber sticks on the side and carrot, thin carrot shreds on the side mm -hmm. and the lettuce on the side and the salad dressing on the side. And we do a little make your own salad. Um, you know, bar <laughs> instead of a taco yeah. bar, it's a make your own salad bar because yeah. that's what your child needs tonight. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's, I think, preventing the mealtimes from happening in the first place by figuring out how everyone's doing today and then figuring out how you're going to prepare the foods to make it easier for your child is going to be the best options. A third major thing to avoid mealtime battles is making sure at every meal and snack, your child starts in a good, stable, postural position. Mm. Because postural stability is the foundation for eating ability at the table. And the correct seated position for children from about seven months of age and above, including us as adults, is to sit in what's called a 90-90-90 position, which is 90 degrees at the hips, 90 degrees at the knees, 90 degrees at the ankles. And that means putting your child in a chair where the front of their knees come over the front edge of the seat on the chair and making sure your child has a foot rest and a foot support mm. to get those ankles at 90 degrees. Think about the last time you went to a restaurant that had tall top tables mm. and you got the bar stool that had no <laughs> rung to it and how incredibly uncomfortable that is. And, and what did you do? Well, you probably leaned backwards on the stool. You leaned forward on the table. You grabbed the arms. You tried to wrap your feet around the, the legs of the chair. You scooched over to one side. You put one little butt cheek on the chair and one foot on the floor. And then you stand up because you're like, yeah, I can't do this. This is way too uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and if you are watching your child and they're wiggling, squiggling at a mealtime, you have a postural stability issue. And that is going to set you up for failure at a meal. And that's going to cause you to have a battle because your child's not going to be able to have enough brain power to focus on making their mouth work correctly. You only have so much motor brain power at any one point in time. And if you're using up all your motor brain power to make sure you're not going to fall out of your chair, <laughs> you're not going to have any motor brain power left over to make your mouth work correctly. Yeah. And I so, love how you're talking about just how these issues come down to some um, physical bodily situations and skill sets, because it kind of takes the pressure off in a way that we don't have to have all this added meaning that we take upon ourselves when it's not going well. 
but what we do need is some additional awareness. And so thank you for helping provide that awareness to us. I you think know, it's a really good point because we do get into attributing meaning when our children don't eat well. And, and we start thinking somehow that, that not only are we to blame, but we sort of interpret it as, you know, don't they love me? They didn't eat this meal I prepared because in so many of our families and our cultures, food and love, you know, really begin to become equated. So yeah. that if, if you don't eat that second bowl of pasta that grandma made you, somehow, you know, you're you're not grateful or right. you don't love your grandma enough, you know, because <laughs> you haven't eaten that extra helping. And 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 I do think it's important that we step back from that as parents mm -hmm. and we don't give those emotional um meaning to the food. We don't give those emotional meanings to what's going on at the mealtime. And that instead we step back and look at what's going on in the moment mm -hmm. and and especially from that physical standpoint for our child yes um i know in your materials you talk about how a lot of us think of eating as a very simple thing but you've identified at least six steps that eating entails could you tell us a little more about these steps absolutely so we, t we talk about an SOS that we, something we call the top 10 myths of mm -hmm. mealtime in America. Mm -hmm. And, and the first myth is that eating is your body's number one priority. Eating is actually not your body's number one priority. Breathing is actually your number one priority. Mm. Your second priority is not falling on your head. Um, or what <laughs> we call postural stability. Yes. And, and the third priority is eating. So, so, so for those of your families out there who have kids who have asthma, chronic sinusitis, chronically runny nose, um, you know, environmental allergies, the breathing is going to be the most important thing that you can address and think about. Mm -hmm. um, the, the second, of course, is that postural stability we just talked about. When we then talk about the third myth about eating, the third myth is that eating is easy. And, and we know that eating is actually the most complicated human activity you will engage in in your entire lifetime. We all just think it's easy because it's, we've all been doing it since we were babies. So right. It just happens, right? But eating is actually the most difficult thing we do as human beings because it's the only thing we do as human beings that involves all of, uh, all seven areas of human function that we have as human organisms and it's mm. the only thing we do as human beings where we have to have every one of those seven areas work correctly and then you have to be able to integrate within and between all seven different areas mm. so that's the first piece that makes eating so extraordinarily complicated more difficult than people actually realize mm -hmm. and and then the fourth myth is that eating is a two-step process that you sit down and you eat, <laughs> sit down, eat. What we know is there's six major steps to eating and that um, within each of those six major steps, there are smaller steps. So the six major steps is first that you have to be able to visually and physically tolerate being in the room with the food, at the table with the food, 
having the food directly in front of you. The next step is interacting with the food, being able to do something to the food without directly touching it to your skin, like stirring it, chopping it, pouring it, poking it. And all of those things are going to visually change the way the food looks and affect that tolerate steps. As you're interacting with the food, generally what's happening is you are distributing the molecules of the food into the air. And so smell is the next major set of steps we have to master. The next major step is is touch steps, then taste steps, and then eating steps. So when we talk about typically developing children who don't really have major physical issues, they will learn to eat a new food in about, on average, 15 to 20 steps across those six major steps. Because remember, every one of the six major steps has several smaller steps within it. Mm. For those children who are picky eaters, for those children who have feeding challenges, it generally is going to take them, on average, about 32 steps to learn how to eat a new food. If you have a child who has um, autism, is on the autism spectrum, generally we find that those children are going to have between 40 and 60 steps in their process of learning how to eat a new food. And so it is absolutely more complicated than what most of us think. It is not two steps. We don't just sit down and eat. Right. A lot of us, especially those of us who are parents of toddlers, we think that we have kids that are picky eaters. Um, But then there are different layers of that. You know, some people consider a picky eater someone who just maybe doesn't want to eat their vegetables. But then there are other kids who really like they truly will not eat certain categories of food. And so you talk about picky eaters versus problem feeders. And I wondered if you could um, illustrate the difference between those two. Great. So one of the things we have available on our website is actually a questionnaire that parents can go and take if they're interested. Um, so on the SOS Approach to Feeding website, there is a professional tab, there's a parent tab, and parents can go to the parent tab and go. Um, to the and open where it says, does my child have a feeding problem? And there's a number of resources in there. And one of them is to take the picky eater versus problem feeder questionnaire. And what you will do is there is a series of bullet points that describe what a picky eater is in a category, what a problem feeder is in a category. And there are about seven or eight different categories. And what parents can do is simply go in and circle whether something is in the picky eater, problem feeder category, and then you just count up to see which category has more circles in it. So when we think about children who are picky eaters, we're really talking about children who are going to independently outgrow their feeding difficulties without having to have some kind of professional assistance. Now, there, there's kind of this idea out there that all kids are picky and that all kids will outgrow their pickiness. And unfortunately, neither of those two things are true either. Mm-hmm. What the research shows from around the world, and the statistics are the same regardless of the country, 
that you are doing the research in is that somewhere between about 25 and 33% of the world's children are going to experience some kind of picky eating at some point in the first decade of their life. So this idea that all kids are picky is actually not accurate. We do know that there are certain times in development where children are more likely to be picky than other times because of things that are happening developmentally in certain ages. And those ages are going to be between two and three, between five and seven, and then again, between nine and 11. Mm. Um, but, you know, when we look at the children and who are picky, who are picky potentially in those developmental time periods, what the research always also shows is only a third to about a half of those children who are picky are actually going to outgrow their picky eating without some kind of professional intervention. And, and so, you know, when we do have a child who is a picky eater, one of the things we really need to look at is the duration of how long the picky eating is going on. Mm -hmm. Children who are picky eaters for longer than a duration of two years pretty much are going to fall over into the problem feeder category. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's kind of the first thing to think about is the duration of the picky eating. Children who are true picky eaters are going to have shorter durations. When we look at children who are problem feeders, they have been picky um, for greater than two years, many of them for most of their lives mm. uh, is what it is. We then want to look at how they react to the different foods and the meal times. So picky eaters, if you put a new food on their plate, they'll fuss at you. They're not going to be happy about it. Children who are problem feeders, if you give them a new food, they will have a nuclear meltdown and they'll cry, they'll scream, they'll throw, they'll run away from the table. Mm. So intensity is another thing that really differentiates the picky eater from the problem feeder. The picky eater can probably learn to eat a new food in about 20 to 25 steps potentially. The child who is the problem feeder is definitely in that 32-step to 40-step process to learn to eat a new food. We know that families of children who have picky eating that's going to be more in that normal picky eating range that the child may outgrow it. When they go in to see their physician for well-child checks, at one well child check, they may say, yeah, they're kind of picky. We're struggling to get them to eat. And then the next time they come in for a well child check, they're like, no, the eating's better. We're doing better. You know, it's not so bad. And then maybe they'll come back and the kid's picky again. So, so it varies. Children who are problem feeders, every time they're coming in and doing a well child check, they're saying to their physician, I can't get this kid to eat. I can't get this kid to eat. The grandma can't get this kid to eat. The school can't get this kid to eat. The nanny can't get this kid to eat. Daycare can't get them to eat. Mm. That's a child who's going to be in that problem mm. feeder category. What you're going to find um, with kids who are picky eaters is they will eat 
one or two foods at least in every texture category in every nutrition group. Children who are problem feeders literally exclude entire nutrition or, or texture groups. So they will not eat a single puree, not even pudding. Mm-hmm. Um, they will not eat a single vegetable, even French fries, although potatoes are, are counted as a vegetable. They're not really a vegetable. They're starch. Um, you know, <laughs> but, but for differentiating picky eaters versus problem feeders, we kind of let you get away with counting potatoes as a, a, a vegetable. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kinds of foods that the child is willing to eat. What we're going to see with children who are picky eaters is they will eat with their family, but often Oftentimes, some of the food that they're eating at the meal is different than the rest of the family. So that the family has made something a little bit different for this child. For the child who is the problem feeder, oftentimes they're either eating a completely different meal than everyone else in the family, Mm -hmm. or they're not eating with the family at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They're eating on, on the couch in front of the television. They're eating at the desk in front of the computer. They're eating by themselves at the table with an iPad. Um, Those are gonna be the children who are in that problem feeder category. So those those are kind of the major things we wanna think about to differentiate between the picky eaters and problem feeders. Um, One uh, resource, of course, that's also on our website is I have a free two-hour parent and caregiver workshop uh, that families can go and take that explains why children don't eat, when they're most likely to get into not eating, as well as giving a series of recommendations and what we call general treatment strategies that the research has shown are the best ways for us to teach our children about eating. But we know that one of the things that is important is having those family meals that you alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, that we know that sitting down and eating together as a family is really important and does have a protective feature to it uh, Mm -hmm. across many levels beyond just eating. So sitting down as a family and having family members be good role models for eating a wide variety of different foods, serving your child at every meal, a wide variety of different foods, making sure that at every meal and at every snack that we're serving our children a protein, a starch, a fruit or a vegetable. Ideal would be to serve them a protein, a starch, a fruit and a vegetable. Right. Real is oftentimes, you know, a fruit or a vegetable. So a snack would not be an apple. A snack would not be cookies. A snack would be some bits of cookie, some slices of apple, and maybe some peanut butter. That Mm -hmm. is what we need to do to get good nutrition into our children. Mm -hmm. We know that family-style serving at a mealtime is actually a really important part of the family meal structure. So starting your family meal with giving your child a warning that you're gonna eat in five minutes so you don't just interrupt what they're doing. 
you give them a warning, help them start preparing to make a shift in what they're doing. And that then you engage them in a transition activity like hand washing, which is a really good hygiene habit to get into. Right. And, and, and then when we sit down at the table, we actually have empty plates in front of us and that we take the food and we pass it around the table. And that the child who is having the feeding challenges gets the food last so that they have time to watch it go from person to person around the table and prepare themselves for when that food's going to come in front of them. Hmm. So that we do things like have what we call a learning plate at the table, not a no thank you plate. A no thank you plate or asking your child to take a no thank you bite closes what we call cognitive doors. Because if you have a no thank you plate, the child thinks, I said no thank you, I don't have to do this. Or I took my no thank you bite, I never have to do this again in my lifetime. <laughs> Whereas when you have a learning plate, that opens the cognitive door so that if a child can't manage having a food in front of them on their plate, they can put it on the learning plate and then everybody does some learning before all the foods go away at the end of the meal. Yeah. So, so that after the family stops serving, everybody eats and has as normal a conversation as you can, that you try <laughs> to keep negative subjects out of the meal time. Kids have emotional antennae. And right. if you start talking about the fact that your oldest child got called into the principal today, or that the traffic was horrible, or you had a bad day at work, your younger child is going to get stressed. Yeah. And what we know when we stress children out at mealtimes is you turn on their adrenaline system. Mm -hmm. And your adrenaline system is an old system. It's meant to protect you from predators. And so what happens when you turn on a child's adrenaline is you actually shut down their appetite and you turn off their gastrointestinal tract. So they can't utilize anything they're eating. Mm -hmm. And so, so you wanna have a normal conversation as happy as you can make it. And mm -hmm. at the end of the meal, you wanna have a clear ending routine where the children assist you with cleaning up the food at the end of the meal. Because oftentimes during cleanup, children will do things with the foods that they wouldn't do during the meal time. So you want me to pick that up and put that in the compost bin, that liver and onions? Yeah, I can do that if it's going in the compost bin. I'm not touching it before, but if it's going in the compost bin, that's okay. <laughs> and that's going to start that process of those six major steps of learning, right? I have to visually tolerate it. I have to interact with it, smell it, touch it eventually taste it and eat it. So right. you, you want to think about a family meal structure that's going to support mm -hmm. your child being successful. Mm -hmm. We also know that being on a feeding schedule is one of the things the research clearly shows supports children's eating. And after about 18 months of age, children should be eating every two and a half to three hours across the course of the day. And that we need to help our children eat small meals on a regular basis. And that has a very protective impact on later obesity. Um, and when children learn to respond to their appetite, learn to respond 
to their fullness sensations because they're getting food at regular intervals across their metabolic um, cycle during right. the day. And eating those things, like you mentioned earlier, that will actually um, incorporate the different nutritional categories. And one of the absolute best resources for families is going to be go to go to an organization called Feeding Matters. Um, so it's www.feeding and then M-A-T-T-E-R-S. So feedingmatters.org. And it is an online parent support organization for children and families of children who have feeding problems. And they have hundreds of resources on their website. And you can search for a feeding therapist in your community on their website as well. And their website has the people who have signed up give some explanation of what their philosophy is in treating kids who have feeding challenges. Thank you so much for those wonderful resources because like sometimes parents just don't even know where to start. So it's helpful to right. have a website like yours that can have a webinar to, to give some introduction and to have a list to start with of, of people to consider going to. So thank you so much for that. Now, as we wrap up um, in my clinic, I tend to work with kids with anxiety and ADHD and sensory issues. And do you have any particular tips? I know that this is a, I just named three very different categories right. of kids, but um, um, any, any specific tips coming to mind for any of those three categories? Right. So, and, and these are absolutely the groups of kids that we see as well, um, because mm -hmm. all of those things predispose children to struggle at meal times. Mm -hmm. For kids who have sensory challenges, because they have sensory difficulties, they I, would ideally like all their foods to be exactly the same, uh, to be crunchy, to be dry, um, and <laughs> to melt in their mouth. <laughs> and not to be mixed textured. And one of the things you see with children who have sensory issues is they get into what we call food jags, where they want to eat the same exact foods prepared the same exact way over and over and over again. Because if you make me my perfect isosceles triangle grilled cheese sandwich, no crust, lightly toasted, only one slice of only the orange craft American cheese, not the yellow, not the lucerne, <laughs> not two slices. <laughs> no brown or black specks on my sandwich at 98.6 degrees. <laughs> I don't have to turn on my sensory brain to eat that food. And the more perfect you make my food as a parent, the less sensory brain power I have to use to eat that food. And so as a child, I'm going to fuss at you, my parent, to get you to make my food more and more perfect because I don't want to work my sensory brain. Mm -hmm. But it's a huge trap that parents get into, a huge trap. Because what we know about the brain is the brain is a use it or lose it organ system. Right. And the, the more perfect you make your child's food as uh, the parent, the less ability and brain pathways your child will have to be able to tolerate and manage differences in their foods. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure, especially for children who have sensory issues, that we are giving them different proteins, different starches, different fruits and vegetables across 
every meal and snack across two full days. We need your child to get through two full days without repeating a single food. The Mm -hmm. only food that children are allowed to repeat is milk. The other major issue about allowing your child to food jag and let them eat the same foods over and over and over again, either every day or every meal, is eventually your child is going to get sick and tired of that food and they will burn out on that food. And they refuse to eat it again. Mm -hmm. And what we know about children who are typically developing is that they will burn out on a food. And if you give them about a two-week break, that child who doesn't have feeding issues will come back and eat that food again. Mm -hmm. If you have a child who's a picky eater or a problem feeder, and they food jag on a food, they burn out on it. You give them a two-week break from that food. When you try to represent that food, they will refuse to eat it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that children start out below the age of two, oftentimes with more foods in their food repertoire. They hit the two to three-year age range where developmentally we know about 50% of children are going to experience some kind of pickiness between two and three. And there's really good developmental reasons for that. And parents give in to that mm-hmm. food jagging because parents are told, don't pick, you know, pick your battles. If your child wants to eat hot dogs every day for lunch, go ahead and do that. That's like the worst piece of advice a professional could ever give a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is then the child burns out on hot dogs and they've lost that out of their food repertoire. And then they burn out on the grilled cheese and they've lost that. And they burn out on pancakes and they burn out on chicken nuggets. And by the time they hit three, the child had maybe 30 foods in their repertoire before the age of two. And by that time they hit three, they only have 20 foods in their food repertoire. Mm-hmm. When I think about children with anxiety, I really want to step back and understand what's going on here. Um, because especially for kids who have sensory issues, they avoid a lot of things and they look like they're anxious because if you have sensory issues and you can't handle information coming from the world into your body, every time you go out into the world, the world basically assaults you. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so of course you start to worry about going out in the world. And, and so you see those kids develop lots of controlling behaviors because of that. And it looks like anxiety, but it's really actually a sensory problem. That's the underlying issue. And the anxiety and the worry and the avoidance has gotten overlaid on top of what the real issue is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so for me, when I talk about, when I think about anxiety in children, I really want to understand what the origin problem is. Right. Because if we can come back and address that origin problem, the anxiety oftentimes is going to go away, mm-hmm. especially if the child is under about eight years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, after that, we think about with kids who have anxiousness about eating that systematic desensitization is the best way to treat those kids. You Mm -hmm. give them a tiny exposure, let them get used to that. 
give them a bigger exposure, get used to that, bigger exposure, get used to that. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what our steps to eating hierarchy is. Um, we have organized the steps to learning to eat in a 32 step staircase. And we work with the children to help them master each one of the 32 steps, one step at a time with each step building on the step that came before. Well, thank you so much for those wise nuggets. I, I appreciate all the wisdom you've shared in this episode. And as we close, could you just state your website one more time for the listeners? So it is www.sosapproach.com. You can put in the whole name, sosapproachtofeeding.com. Both of them will get you to our website. Thank you so much, Dr. Toomey. You are welcome. And thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Compassion Parenting Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What resonated with you? What questions came up? Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Compassion Parenting or within my free Facebook group, Parenting Well, Raising Compassionate and Productive Humans. Links are in the show notes. If you've gained insight from the time we've shared today, leave a review and subscribe. There's a quick how-to in the show notes. Have a blessed week. May you love yourself, your family, and the world wisely and well.